Welcome to episode 12 of the Wealth and Law podcast. I'm Brent Nelson, and per usual, I am joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. We're just trying to keep all the kids occupied all day long because it's summertime now. There's no school to take up half the day. And I, it's, you know, it's happening. It is happening. That's hard. Yeah. Well, in Arizona too now, it's, it's hot. So you can't really be outside anymore during the day. So yeah. now you're just really stuck inside all the time. Yeah. It's, it's kind of difficult. I don't know. We're not unique. So I don't want to, I don't want to complain about it. Like there's a lot of people in, in similar circumstances, but boy, they're active. <laughs> that's, that's all I can say for them. How about you guys? We're we're doing okay. We've got uh, we've got our dogs on a pretty good schedule now, so they they know to sleep during the day, and then at five o'clock is when they go crazy, and they know they get their their playtime at that point. So we we've got the system down and pat down nice. down pat at our house. Yeah. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> if you can control one element of the group of elements in the household, I think that's a success. Exactly. Yeah, it's a win. <laughs> yeah. Well, should we do a podcast? What do you think? Yeah, we should probably get around to okay. that today. Yeah, let's do it. Well, I thought today we could talk about a slightly different topic than we've talked about in the past. This is a little bit off of the beaten path topically, but I think in a good way. And so we're going to be talking a bit about personal financial planning. And I thought a very good person to do that with would be somebody that I like and has the, the appropriate namesake, Doug Nelson. Doug is a partner or shareholder at TCI Wealth Advisors in Tucson. He is a CPA, excuse me, by training, and he has a personal financial specialist designation by the AICPA, which basically means as far as I am aware that he loves taking tests and studying things. And he is all into this sort of topic. And I've known Doug uh, for a bit now, and I, I really admire him. And so, Doug, it is our pleasure to have you on the podcast. Well, thanks, Brent. Happy to be here. This seems like fun. It is fun. It should be fun. If it's not fun, you just let us know, and then we'll just end it right there. <laughs> okay, got it. Or, or Rachel will make me hang up, and then she can carry on in a fun way. Yeah, we can, we can just go on without him, Doug. It's okay. It's okay. It's <laughs> probably the most appropriate outcome. <laughs> well, Brent, like you were saying earlier, we're going to try and do a little bit of a different topic. And Doug, you are pretty much going to be the expert on this tonight. But, you know, I'm thinking people probably noticed that the market's been pretty volatile lately in the age of kind of COVID-19 you know, a few weeks ago, we saw some really high highs. And lately, we've seen some really low lows. Sometimes it goes up again, sometimes it goes back down again. And a lot of people are kind of worried about it. And there's a lot of uncertainty. And they don't really know how to react, what to do right now. You know, you've got a lot of people who were about to retire, some people who did retire. My father-in-law actually retired the week his state had a the stay in place order. And now he's looking at his retirement accounts thinking, oh my goodness, what did I do? And you know, you've got people like that all over the country wondering, what do I do? Can I still do a little bit of wealth planning? And you know, as advisors, as attorneys, that's kind of our job to, you know, help ease that little bit of uncertainty and guide our clients 
to just feeling a little bit more secure and what they can do today. And I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, in the age of market volatility, there are a lot of things that you can do today to still keep the wealth planning going, to kind of keep control as, as much as we can in today's environment. So I kind of thought that that's what we would talk about today. So, you know, there's different things that we can do, but I was thinking for today, we can kind of focus first on rebalancing portfolios, kind of what that looks like, then kind of go into tax loss harvesting, since that kind of plays off of the rebalancing of your portfolios. Then going into a bit of a charitable planning, we can't forget that in the age of COVID-19, nonprofits need just as much support as they did before, um, if not more. And so if someone has charitable intent, it's really um, a good idea to try and keep that up as much as you can in today's world. And then lastly, just looking at some kind of risk strategies that we've got going on in today's market. So how does that sound as a plan for today? Sounds great. Perfect. I like it. Yeah, I like it. Let's do it. All right. Awesome. It's interesting too, Rachel, that you talked initially about clients and counseling them. And it's, uh, it's been kind of an interesting couple of months now, just as you would suspect with this volatility. And we, we'll get to each of the specifics, I'm sure, as we, as we walk through this. But the, the most important part has been the emotional response to the ups and downs of the market. And this being more of an event-driven recession or pullback in markets, people have addressed it much differently than they have in the past. I'm much older than you are, you and Brent. I'm 62 years old. You are older than us. That was, <laughs> that was very good observational uh, rationale there, Doug. Very well, good. I, can see, I can see you on the computer screen. So I can <laughs> Unless you are extremely well-preserved, which could be the case, I suppose. Or good hair dye. Really good yeah, hair dye. The interesting thing is that living through all of those, I've seen a bunch of different reactions, you know, to everyone saying the sky would fall in 2020 because computers can't handle anything past 1999 and the 87 crash that was such a flash and, and a frightening thing for everyone to the debacles in, in 2008. This one being very much a specific event that gave rise to these market fluctuations and the responses have been different. Probably 25%, I've been very proactive in calling people, and probably 25% of the people that I've talked with, all clients, have responded in, with some type of fear, some concern. Another 25 surprised me and responded with, hey, you know what, Doug, I haven't told you, but I've been rattling some money in my checking account. I want to put it in because now's a great time to get invested with markets way down. And a good 50% of the population has been pretty much along the lines, you know, we've seen this before. I know there's an end in sight, so you're probably going to tell me just to bide my time. And that's exactly it. I heard a really good quote at the very beginning of this. Someone said that your 401k is just like your face during COVID-19. Don't touch it. And I thought, how, how perfect. There are plenty of things that we can do, though. And I don't want you to think that, that just because staying the course and not reacting emotionally is extremely important a structured approach would give rise to some of the topics that Rachel talked about earlier. Yeah, uh, I, I like that. Uh, don't touch it in the sense of uh, don't, don't go ham and try and get out of it all of a sudden and, and rip up the playbook that you came up with that got you where you are now. Correct. Just like a strategic plan for a business, in most cases, having a strategic plan and following it is much more important than the strategic plan itself. The plan is typically not what makes the difference. 
It's the structure and the discipline to stick with it. That's what makes the difference. I couldn't agree with you more, Doug. So kind of going off of that then, your kind of strategic plan that you've got to start with, I'm assuming part of that is going to be a balanced portfolio. So can you kind of just first explain at, at its very core, I mean, what, what is a balanced portfolio that someone has? Kind of what, what is that? What does it entail? A well-balanced portfolio, uh, some would argue that having sufficient individual stocks could create a well-balanced portfolio. In most cases, mutual funds are the most cost-effective way to get there because you want large asset class exposure. As an example, during the 10 years ended 2010, because of the 2008 problem, we, we considered that everyone was calling that the lost decade. Because the S&P 500, making up the 500 typically largest companies in the United States, traded on the exchanges here, ended up at about zero over that 10-year time period. A well-diversified portfolio over that same time period doubled in value. Now, the reason for that is that a well-diversified portfolio doesn't just hold 500 stocks. It also holds some real estate, typically through real estate investment trusts. It holds small cap stocks. It holds international large company stocks. It holds international small company stocks. It holds emerging market stocks and the value component of each of those asset classes. So a well-diversified portfolio encompasses all the asset classes that have a risk return characteristic that is positive for being added to a portfolio. So when someone says a, a well-diversified portfolio, I kind of chuckle if they're talking about a portfolio that has less than say 10,000 different stocks in it, typically in mutual funds, and somewhere north of a couple thousand bonds spread throughout the entire world, both equities, stocks, and bonds, and real estate mostly spread throughout the entire world. But you have to be careful there with real estate because foreign real estate investment trusts have peculiar tax consequences. So uh, in a taxable account, you have to be careful of that. Doug, can you talk a little bit about how you come up with what is the right balancing for a particular client, at least as, you know, as an initial matter, you know, how, do you, how do you figure out what is balanced for that particular client under their set of circumstances. Sure, sure. Again, I'm 62. I plan to work right through my mid-70s. I plan to work right through until some of the younger people, like Kyle that you golfed with today, Brent, comes into my office and says, Doug, you can't even remember where you live. I don't think you need to be coming into the office anymore. <laughs> I, really, I really feel passionate about what I do. So having a longer time horizon for my retirement my retirement plan in the form of IRAs, 401ks, and tax-deferred accounts is 85% equities in real estate and 15% bonds. Now, my father, on the other hand, who is 89 years old and uses part of his portfolio on an annual basis, is 50% stocks and real estate and 50% bonds because we want the risk much lower for him. I can weather ups and downs much better than he can because he's relying on that for some of his living expenses. Now, the interesting thing is our portfolios have the exact same investments in them. I just have a higher percentage in equities and real estate, and he has a higher percentage than I do in bonds. Now, that portfolio would typically be made up of 
mutual funds that probably two mutual funds in each of the separate asset classes being U.S. large company stocks, U.S. small company stocks, foreign large company stocks, foreign small company stocks, emerging markets, and real estate investment trusts. The percentages of each of those are going to be fairly consistent, spread through the equity classes as a group. As a, again, my father would have lower, a lower percentage in domestic large company stocks than I would. But we would have a home country bias. Now, the reason for that home country bias is because exchange rates in foreign countries, currency exchange rates, have an impact on investment returns. We can decrease those by having a little higher allocation towards home country, or in my case, the United States, stocks than I would in continental European stocks. I'm kind of getting into the weeds here a little bit, I'm afraid. But Well, can you then can you, so explain just at a very basic level, and we can build on top of that, the idea of bonds being less risky than equity? Because I think you've teed that up by describing the different mix between equities and real estate on one hand and bonds on the other hand, as between your portfolio and your father's portfolio and the difference on a time horizon of when you're going to need to use that money between you and your father. Correct. The real reason for bonds in any liquid portfolio really is simply to bring stability to the overall portfolio. At 89, my father does not want to see a 30% decline in his portfolio. My portfolio with 85% equities in real estate lost more than that in 2008 and 2000, early 2009. His did not. Why? Because bonds didn't plummet in value like equities did. Bonds are much more stable, especially if you own very high quality and very short-term bonds. And this is an important point. There, people will say, oh yeah, I'm doing great because I've got these 30-year bonds and I've got a very high coupon rate, you know, four or 5%. So I'm doing wonderful. Well, not really, because every study that's been done would indicate that once you get out past about seven or eight years in maturity for a bond, the standard deviation or the fluctuation of that bond price starts to look like stocks. So if you're accepting the same volatility in price, the same risk, then why wouldn't you want the higher rates of return associated with stocks for that same level of risk? So when you think about bonds, their sole purpose for a portfolio is to bring stability and ease of mind. I call it in many cases, the sleep factor for, for older people. Oh, listen to that. 62, I'm talking about older people. <laughs> Wait, we'll older, let you. Yeah, older people, <laughs> it's sleep factor. So you sleep well at night. You don't have to think about it. And that's important. Why accept risk if you don't need to? So my father is totally fine with a 50-50 allocation. And when prices go up rapidly, he earns less than my portfolio does. But when they tank, he's just fine. He doesn't have to worry about it. So Doug, so what about for people who didn't go the safer route? That they, you know, they have more, um, more assets allocated towards uh, stocks, so it's gonna be a little bit more volatile with the market. How, how often should they kind of rethink that and then kind of you know, rebalance their portfolio then? That's a, that's a great point, Rachel. And let's differentiate, first of all, before, between rethinking and rebalancing. Rethinking would indicate that you're questioning whether or not 
your mixture of equities and real estate, like mine, equities and real estate of 85% and bonds of 15. That's a fairly aggressive portfolio. Now, the only time I would rethink that is if the goals for my life change. So maybe when I'm 74 or five and I say, I'm going to start drawing from that portfolio and I need about 35% of it in safety, very safe types of investments like bonds so that I can draw that out over the next three to five years, then I would lower my allocation to equities and real estate and increase my exposure to bonds so that I know where that cash will come from to pay for my great food here in the Southwest. Now, that's rethinking your portfolio based on your goals. If you're rethinking your portfolio because you are emotionally distraught, don't touch it. That's right back to the do not touch it. It's, it's like your face in COVID-19. That's an emotional response. We want to avoid that. We may have learned something from that. Maybe once things stabilize again, maybe we should reflect on this and say, you know, maybe that portfolio was too aggressive for you emotionally. But don't try and fix it now when you're emotionally distraught. Now, that is rethinking. Rebalancing is a very, very interesting concept. It, uh, it leads to what most in the industry, most individuals think we're all trying to do. And that is buying low and selling high. If we could forecast that, if anyone could, if anyone could tell you when to buy and when to sell based on what markets are going to do tomorrow, they would be wealthy beyond imagination. So don't even start to think that. It also, they would have to be convinced that their knowledge is greater than everyone else who's trading stocks and bonds in the entire world combined, because that's what gives rise to prices, a, a trading platform of willing buyers and sellers. So for me to think that I can tell you what stocks are going to do tomorrow, I have to believe that I'm smarter than everyone else in the world combined. The probability of that is very close to zero. So rebalancing is a very structured approach. And that's what we talked about earlier, structure being so important. In my portfolio, I have 85% equities and real estate, 15% bonds. Well, when equities and real estate drop by 20%, my portfolio isn't 85% equities and real estate anymore. It's much closer to 70, yeah, about 70% equities and real estate. So in order for me to reach my goals, if my portfolio is really supposed to be 85% equities in real estate and 15% bonds. Now, because of market fluctuation, my portfolio is now 70% equities and 30% bonds. In order for, when, for me to achieve the, the wealth plan that I have in place, I need to sell off about 15% of those bonds and buy equities with it. Now, just think about that for a second. What did I just do? I just sold the best performing assets in my portfolio and bought a bunch of losers. How stupid is that? Well, that's exactly what everyone is trying to do. What did I just do? I sold when bonds were high and I bought equities when they were low. Now, I didn't do it because I, I think I know what's going to happen tomorrow. I did it because I know that in order to achieve what I want out of this life, I needed to have 85% in equities and real estate and 15% in bonds over the long term. So that rebalancing opportunity for me is huge. Vanguard did a study in 2014. They found that simple structured rebalancing like that adds 0.35% to an investor's portfolio 
each and every year. So you just got a third of a percent for just being structured. You can even make it automatic. It doesn't matter if you're a Schwab or a Fidelity or a Vanguard, you can set it up so your portfolio automatically does that. And I recommend that for everyone handling their own portfolio because all too often we'll second guess it. If we leave it up to ourselves, we'll say, oh, no, 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 no. I think stocks are going to drop even more. And then we miss an opportunity. Or, oh, you got to be kidding me. Emotionally, I can't take selling my beautiful bonds that did so well and buying those stocks that are so dangerous. So we let emotion get in the way. Staying structured is by far the most important part of an overall wealth plan. That's an amazing uh, statistic from that Vanguard study, because especially when you start stretching that out over lots of years, that is a substantial amount of money. That, you know, it becomes a very huge percentage of the growth in your portfolio. It's huge. It's very huge. What about the, what about the timing on doing rebalancing? What, what do you like to do? What, what's kind of your preference on how, how frequently you're doing that rebalancing? Obviously, I don't think you could do it every day. You, a, you drive yourself nuts, and, and B, I don't know if you'd really get the same results. Yeah, there have been a lot of studies, and the studies keep changing because the single biggest factor in how often you rebalance originally was the cost. Every time you buy or sell something, it costs money. It costs money in transaction fees and potentially in income tax. So you have to be careful of both of those. What most of the studies originally concluded was we can't tell you exactly, but it's around a 20% deviation from your allocation for that specific asset class. So let's just say that you have 20% of your portfolio in US large company stocks. If that allocation grows to 24%, you should be selling off that 4% and putting it in the asset classes that are below their target. If it drops to 16%, you should be buying more. U.S. large company stocks. So a 20% deviation in the target allocation. And again, the 20% of a 20% allocation is simply 4%. So 16 to 24%. Now, what's happened is that we've seen these transaction costs come down. Tax rates are lower and transaction costs have come way down. So it's really looking like maybe a 15% deviation is about right. Now, the reason that that I recommend percentages as opposed to, well, let's look at it every quarter or every month. When you do that, you're looking at a specific date in time. You could have missed an opportunity three days earlier where an asset class plummeted and you could have purchased it very, very inexpensively and then reap the rewards over the next two or three days when it's gone back up when you're looking at a date specific. So percentages are usually the best approach. And again, most platforms will have an automatic way for that to get done. So how many days in the last two months has your office been rebalancing portfolios? <laughs> <laughs> we have four dedicated traders that spend all of their time just making sure transactions get processed correctly and on a timely basis. The volume in the last 60 days dwarfs the volume for any, any prior 90-day period. I mean, it, it has just been, the volume has been huge. And we've been doing our best to keep up with it. Our experience in our firm is not much different than what we've seen at the large brokerage houses. Charles Schwab, Fidelity, A.G. Edwards, all of them have experienced this same huge volume in transactions. Uh, some of that are, are people being afraid. You know, some of it has been the retail 
investor saying, hey, I'm scared of this. I've got to get out. I just have to get out. Again, wrong thing to do, but it's very, very common. So yeah, huge, huge volume. So a client comes to you, they want to rebalance. That also kind of gives them an opportunity for some tax loss harvesting as well, which is, you know, another kind of critical piece of advice that you can give to one of your clients. Can you kind of explain what tax loss harvesting is and, and how that could be really important for somebody? You know, again, some of the things that we can have an impact on, we can control our costs. And when you really start looking at a portfolio, uh, whether it's individual stocks, bonds, real estate, mutual funds, the costs associated with it are what will have a big impact on what you get to keep and put in your pocket. One of those costs is costs are tax, income tax. So if I know that I'm going to receive some form of capital gain dividend distribution, or I know that throughout the year I'm going to be selling some equity positions and realize capital gains. During the year, if equity prices plummet, and all of a sudden now I have a 10, say a $10,000 loss in a mutual fund that I bought that I really want to keep, but it's, I've paid $10,000 more for it than it's worth today. If I can harvest that $10,000 loss and use it to offset a gain that I would ordinarily have to pay a tax on, that $10,000 at 20%, which is the capital gains tax rate most commonly experienced by most individuals, that $10,000 loss I can use to offset either gains that I've already realized or gains in the future. If I can offset that $10,000 loss against a $10,000 gain, I can save myself $2,000 in tax cost in this year. So it's just a very effective tool to decrease capital gains payments in this tax year or in the future, and you get to carry those losses over. Now, the other thing is you can use up to $3,000 of long-term capital losses against ordinary income as well. So if I really have a high income client and we can realize enough losses to offset his gains plus $3,000, that's perfect because I get to take his capital gains to zero and then use $3,000 of that long-term loss against ordinary income, which will be taxed at a much higher rate than the capital preferential capital gains tax rates. And then those, those losses that you haven't used, you know, the idea of like, you can carry them forward. It's like, you can carry them forward indefinitely. You can carry them forward as many years as you want until you can use them all up. So if you have capital gains in year one and you can offset those capital gains with capital losses in year one, and you still have capital losses left over, even after you use up 3000 against ordinary income, if in the next year you have zero capital gains and you have ordinary income, you can still use your 3000 in that year against the ordinary income. And then you can keep doing that really forever during your lifetime until you've used up all of those losses. So you can, you know, you can like trigger the event now that generates the loss and then it, it can continue to be dipped into as long as you have gains or income now or in the future to offset it. Correct. And you can also use those, say that in year two, you sell a rental property and you have a gain from that. You can use those losses to offset that gain. So it's, it's a very effective tax benefit to have in your pocket. Now, keep in mind that especially during these times right now, markets are moving very rapidly. And I would never suggest that you let the tax tail wag the dog. If you can harvest some losses and still replace that investment in your portfolio 
with an investment that will get you pretty close to, if not the exact same asset class exposure, then it's worth doing. But just think about this for a second, that very same case, what if we save $2,000 because we harvested a loss of $10,000? And let's say that we sold an asset for $100,000 in order to generate that $10,000 loss. All the market has to do is move 2% up. And if I'm out of that $100,000 investment, while that investment goes up by 2%, I've just lost the $2,000 that I thought I saved in tax. So you have to be very careful in ensuring that you don't give up a good investment strategy just to harvest some tax losses. So find ways to make that work. Yeah, and in case anybody is wondering, well, why can't you just rebuy uh, what you just sold off? There's a tax rule called the wash sale rules that essentially creates a 60-day window. It's 30 days prior, 30 days after window, where you cannot have purchased substantially identical stock or securities within 30 days of the sale or 30 days after the sale. So you've got this kind of cooling off period where you can't flip straight back into the same investment that you just sold off. So therefore, the only thing you can do is try to get adjacent to it in something that is as similar to it as you can get without it being quote unquote substantially identical. Nobody knows what substantially identical really is, but you know, as close as you can feel comfortable getting to it without getting back into the exact same investment, that's as close as you can get. And you want to be there during that 30 day window so that as you pointed out, you don't miss a run up in the market that then will make it so much more expensive to get back into the original investment that all of the benefits will have been wiped out. Correct. Correct. And that's, that's another good reason for using mutual funds instead of individual stocks. An example of that is if in a portfolio I have the Vanguard U.S. small company value stock fund and I have a loss in it and I want to sell it and harvest that loss, on the very same day I can take the proceeds from that sale and buy the dimensional fund advisors U.S. microcap stock fund which should get me very, very similar asset class exposure, but it is a different fund. So it won't trigger a wash sale or shouldn't trigger a wash sale because as you mentioned, Brent, we really don't know what that definition is. Yeah, I, I'm inclined to say it's, it's not, that's not substantially identical. It's funny, Rachel and I were talking about this earlier. And so I was saying, well, nobody knows what that term is, substantially identical. And I gave the example of, let's say you sold Coca-Cola stock, and then you bought options to buy Coca-Cola stock, I think that's pushing the envelope. You know, yes, they're different securities. They have totally, they have different rights, but they're so close and they're so tied to the same exact thing that you just sold that like you're really playing with fire in that situation. If you then bought, you know, stock in some other beverage company, I think maybe that's a little bit okay. You know, that's more uh, clear cut. It's not substantially identical. But if you're trying to get too cute, you're going to get your fingers burnt and there's really no reason to do it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's where good tax lawyers like you would make, make your fees very rapidly by arguing that selling Coca-Cola and buying Pepsi are not substantially identical. Right. <laughs> and the other thing to keep in mind is that it's across all of your accounts. So don't think that you can sell Pepsi in your IRA and buy it in your trust account. Yeah, very good point. Look, as somebody who has a preference flavor-wise between Coca-Cola and Pepsi, I can tell you they are not identical. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows they're not identical. 
clearly. And that's your professional argument that you'll go right to the treasury with, right? Exactly. I will bring a can of Coca-Cola and a can of Pepsi and a blindfold and we will, we will solve it right there. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, a, there's definitely a difference. <laughs> is this it? Rachel, is this the point where you kick me out of this meeting? Uh, just, yeah. Brent, Brent, come on. We're, we're not talking about blind taste tests here. Come on. We're, we're talking about podcasts. Come on. Let's go. Get back to the point. <laughs> well, guys, okay. So then switching gears, Brent, if that's okay, we can move on from of course. Drink. Of course. Before we get on to different types of water and things like that. Um, how about we move on to charitable planning? And I know, Brent, you've got uh, a lot to talk about this right now because there's a lot of different avenues that someone can pursue right now for keeping with their charitable intent uh, during this time. And of course, just supporting nonprofits because they need our help more than ever right now. Yeah. And I think a lot of people want to support nonprofits right now too, even beyond tax benefits that you can get out of it. It just so happens that some of the tax benefits are favorable now and that the way that things are right now set up a set of circumstances that is a little bit different from the way things were say three months ago. So let me, let me drill down on that just a little bit. So first of all, as we're probably all aware, interest rates have dropped pretty significantly and most of the charitable planning vehicles that are not just writing a check and giving that check to the charity and then having nothing to do with the money, rely on interest rates. And the IRS tracks the interest rate. They tell you every month what the interest rate is. It's called the 7520 rate after code section 7520. And so right now, in it's May 2020, 7520 rate is 0.8%. In June 2020, it's going to be 0.6%. Those are historically low numbers. And the 7520 rate is the, it's the rate that they use to figure out what the value of money today is. And then it's the rate that they use to figure out what is the minimum amount of interest you would have to charge on a loan before you violate certain imputed interest rate, interest rules that would basically be detrimental to any sort of transaction. So you, you always wanna to try to avoid those rules where you can. So for example, just thinking through that then, it means if, you, if there's someone who say is uncomfortable just giving a lump sum of money to a charity because they're not sure how the charity is gonna use it or they wanna be able to have some control over how the money is spent, they could, instead of just giving the money to the charity, they could make a low interest loan to the charity. You could have a loan of close to 1% for five, 10 years or more. And then the charity can use that money now and in the future, hopefully, when things get more back to normal and their funding sources come back to normal, they will be able to pay back that loan. And if the lender decides in the future that the charity acted in the way that they were hoping for, they could forgive the loan. And at that point, make a gift to the charity that would qualify for special tax you know, deductions for tax purposes. So there's that element, just like thinking about using the interest rates in that way, that that didn't even exist to the same extent uh, as it does now, just a few months ago. The other thing is in the CARES Act, there was a provision that said that you can give, if you give cash, you can give $300 to a charity and you can take an above the line deduction against your taxes for having given the charity 
the $300. And above the line means it's not subject to any sort of limitations. It comes straight off of your tax, your gross income, and it, it reduces your taxable income, which reduces your tax bill by whatever your tax rate is. So if you think through that, if your tax rate is 25% and you give this $300, well, 25% of 300 is $75. You have saved $75 in tax, meaning that you gave 300, but you got back 75. So you actually only had to give 225 on a net basis when you file your tax returns and you get your return back, et cetera, or you get your refund back. That doesn't sound like a lot of money, but for someone who doesn't, A, doesn't have a lot of money to give, it's a great thing to do. And you can actually get a tax benefit for, benefit for having done it. And B, some charities are very efficient in the way that they use cash contributions in particular. And so the best example would be most food banks are very good at taking dollars and making the dollars work really efficiently within their structures to actually like put food on plates so that people can have meals. So most food banks will say something along the lines of, well, for every dollar we can, we can feed 10 people. Like, so they can serve 10 meals out of $1 worth of um, food that they, they're able to go out and purchase. So, so giving them the dollar lets them do that. If you give them food that it doesn't get the same re- return. So if you give them $300 and now they can take that and they can feed 3000 people and you actually only, you gave them 3,000, but you actually only had to give, give up 225. For $225, you fed 3,000 meals. That's pretty powerful stuff. So I don't think, even though it's a very small amount of money, I think on a large scale, if enough people do it, there's a huge impact that people can have right now and get a little bit of a tax benefit. And that didn't exist until March 27th, I think, which was the the signing date of the CARES Act. So it's very, very recent. The other way that charitable planning has really been affected is that if, say, you don't just want to give a check to charity and you want to get something back, then you would put on your kind of economist's hat and you would view the money as having a current value, a present value, plus appreciation in the future. If you took that money and you invested it, it could appreciate in the future. And so what the tax rules say is you can take those two elements, the current value and the future appreciation and split them apart and only give one or the other to charity. So if you give the charity the future appreciation only, it's called a charitable remainder trust. And if you give the charity the current value only and you keep the future appreciation, it's called a charitable lead trust. And this interest rate that I was talking about, the 7520 rate is used to determine what the value of what you have retained is worth because you're going to retain an interest for a number of years in this money. And so, and that interest rate, just sort of believe me without getting too much into the weeds here, but just sort of believe me when I say that interest rate is really favorable for charitable lead trusts because it makes the value of what you're giving to charity look bigger than maybe it actually is. Because if the money in the trust grows at a rate that's higher than the 75-20 rate, so say next month higher than 0.6%, and you could stretch that out over a term of years, so let's say five or 10 years, if it grows by a rate of more than 0.6% over a five or 10 year period, all of that appreciation can come straight back to you or you can give it to your family. And the charity will get whatever amount is below that threshold. And that, that is actually the opposite of the way things were three months ago. Three months ago, 
the interest rates were much higher. And when interest rates are higher, the charitable remainder trust is much more favorable because of these kind of valuation issues. And so that was sort of the, the thing you would want to do if you were really trying to do the math and, and maximize your tax deduction. Now it's on its head. It's the charitable lead trust that gives you the maximum tax deduction. If you're trying to give to charity, but also get squeeze out as much benefit that you can get out of, get out of it for yourself, that's what you would do. It's a total change. Like two months ago, I wasn't even thinking about that because it was that we were in a totally different universe. And then all of this happened and then it all flipped on its head. So, and who knows how long it's going to last. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you have different uh, economists, you know, saying the market's going to come back right away. Others are saying it's not going to come back right away. You, you don't really know. And you really do need to take advantage of some of these planning techniques that you can now while we know we got low interest rates. Well, so guys, I think then we can kind of hit our last main point of what people can do uh, during this COVID-19 era. So let's talk about risk strategies. I was thinking we could talk about bonds. You know, a lot of people love bonds. They're considered very safe investments like you talked about earlier, Doug. So, you know, kind of should people be looking at bonds more and also about annuities. A lot of people are thinking, oh, maybe this is a great way to kind of get some income. Maybe it's safe. Doug, what do you think about all that? Well, Rachel, we know that the reason to have bonds in your portfolio is to bring that level of safety. The consistency of returns, they don't fluctuate like equities do, provided that you keep them fairly short in duration. We don't want uh, bonds with maturities way out there 30 years. They're, they're, they're just the risk-return relationship just isn't positive. So keeping short-term bonds is a great way to minimize risk. It's the most effective way. There are these other techniques like annuities, and there are some people that will actually sell life insurance policies as an investment. They're not really. Life insurance policies are kind of a bet that you'll die early. Now, the reason that I say that is life insurance and annuities are very, very similar. There's an expected date that we will all perish, an expected life. There's certain amounts that insurance companies are willing to take our money, invest it, take their profit off the top, and then give us what's left over. And that's really all an annuity or a life insurance policy is. A lot of people are attracted to annuities. And while I'm not a big fan of them, I do know people that maybe some very low cost annuities might work for. But those are people who are willing to say, yes, I understand that if I sign this contract, which an annuity is simply a contract, to give this insurance company, say $200,000, and they're going to give me a certain monthly amount back starting at my age 70 for the remainder of my life that I recognize I could probably invest that 200000 now and earn more than what they're going to give me because they're going to want their profit from that. Now, that's simply the truth. Now, there's a breakover with all of these in time. Let's say that you sign that contract, you give them your 200000 and when you turn 70, you start collecting your monthly amount, and then you perish at age 72. Terrible investment. You didn't even get one-tenth of your money back. Now, let's just say that the break-even point is that you collect on that until you are 87 years old. Well, if you live to 105, that was a pretty good deal for you. So an annuity is kind of like betting that you're going to outlive statistically what you should. 
Life insurance, on the other hand, is just the opposite. If I give you 200000 now for a $4 million policy upon my death, and I die two years from now, that's a great investment for my family. If I live to 105, it's a terrible investment because that 200000 would have grown to much more. Otherwise, the insurance company wouldn't do it. They're going to earn a profit by virtue of you trusting them to take your money and give it back to you. That's really all those contracts are. So when I look at annuities, I say, well, if someone's willing to pay someone else to write them a guarantee, okay, I understand that. It's a type of insurance. But again, it's insurance. It's not an investment. It's simply an insurance. That's all. If you're willing to pay for that, that's great. If you sleep better at night and it adds, adds five years to your life, then maybe you should have an annuity. I have yet to find anyone when we actually calculate the cost of that annuity saying, okay, here's what you could have earned if you would have invested that money yourself. Here's what the annuity, the life insurance company, the annuity company is going to give you back. The difference between those is $27,385. Most people say, well, that's stupid. Why do I want to give them that much money? And I say, I agree. <clears throat> that's the reason that, and I don't want to I don't you know, want to plug any specific financial counselor, but if you are a financial advisor, a tax guy, an audit CPA, or a financial attorney, both of you are what I would consider financial attorneys. Tax attorneys are automatically there. You guys have to learn how to add somewhere along the line. If you were as old as me, you probably still would have a 10 key, but you're not, so you probably oh, no. no, we have Excel. <laughs> they, they invented Excel. <laughs> yeah. So that's the primary reason for listening to someone like that. Our job isn't to tell you what to do. Brent's job isn't to say, do a charitable lead trust. His job is to lay it all out so that everyone can understand the costs and the benefits and then make an educated choice. That's really what we're here for. Beware of those people that always have a solution. And it doesn't matter what the problem is. The solution is always the same. It's not. People make wise choices when they fully understand the costs and the benefits of what they're doing. Yeah, I have some, some clients who bought an annuity or were being pitched to buy an annuity. Now, this was a, defer, a deferred annuity. I should be clear on that. This was not an, an immediate annuity. This is a deferred annuity. They're being pitched to buy this deferred annuity. And to their credit, they actually brought me the documents before they did anything because they, they wanted to ask my opinion. And so, of course, like lawyers do, we sat down, we read through all the documents and we said, uh, we don't really see why this is such a great investment. I think the, the minimum interest rate or the, the guaranteed interest rate was really not very high. It was two or 3%. And they're going to put a couple hundred thousand dollars into the policy. And the policy had a surrender charge of, it was close to $30,000. And the surrender period was, I think it was three years, a three-year window and it tiered down, the surrender charge tiered down over three years, but you still had to wait out a three-year period before you could take any money out without paying the surrender charge, which was the 30, the 30 grand. You didn't have to pay this 30 grand if you took the money out of the policy in the first year. And they said, well, you know, uh, we were in the market and then 2008 happened and we, we got out of the market. We, we don't ever want to be in the market again. We, and with this, it will never lose money. That's what they were told. And, and I looked at them and I said, well, uh, it says right here in the contract that on day one, when you put the money in, you've lost $30,000. You can't get it back. So therefore, you have lost money right up front. And in fact, you're not in the money 
for three years. Because if you take the money out before three years is up, you'll never get all your money back. And they were so convinced by, you know, whomever it was that was selling these annuities that despite the fact that I had read through the contract and told them exactly what it said, they went ahead and bought the annuity anyways. It was a little bit frustrating for me because I like to think that I give good advice, but somewhat to your point, Doug, I, I also recognize that it's not my choice to make the decision about how to write the checkout. It's my choice. It's my job. Sorry, it's not my job to make the decision about how to, to whom to write the check. It's my job to counsel clients on what's the effect of writing that check. And then it's on them to decide where the money's going to go. That's absolutely correct. I, I just wish people would really understand there's a direct relationship between that surrender charge and the amount of money the guy that's sitting across the desk from you telling you what a great investment it is gets paid. Now, I wanna point out that I am almost religious about being a fee-only advisor. I would never accept a commission of payment from anyone under any circumstances other than the client. And all that is fully disclosed, so you, you see my fees right there. And the problem with so many of those annuities and life policies is the upfront commissions that the guys are getting paid, the guys and the gals. That's the reason that those penalties are so huge is because they're getting paid a lot of money to sell you that product. Now, the one thing, those of us that remember the great limited uh, real estate limited partnerships that were offering great tax benefits back in the 80s, people were selling them like hotcakes. You couldn't hardly find them because everyone wanted to buy them for the tax benefits. And they were paying a 10% commission for people selling those limited partnerships, at least 10%. Some of them went 15, 18%. And I will tell you, going through those days, I was a tax guy then, so I saw a lot of them. I saw a lot of K-1s on people's tax returns. Not very many of them ever panned out. And I will tell you that there's a direct relationship between the amount of the commission that's paid and what a terrible investment it is. The higher the commission, the worse <laughs> the investment because you have to pay someone to actually take advantage of another human being to that great of an extent. So I guess you, you can tell the way that I feel about that. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fairly, fairly true. I mean, that's my, that's my other complaint about the way that annuities, deferred annuities in particular, are sold is that the fees are just not disclosed at all, which is so strange to me because that, that just can't happen in the legal profession. It's, it's just impossible. You know, we have to itemize out all of our fees down to the, the minute of the task of the thing that we did for the client. And then if they have a problem with it, ultimately they can complain to the state bar and the state bar will sick an arbitrator on the case and the arbitrator will decide what is reasonable. Mm -hmm. And you're, you know, and we're stuck with that. Whatever they decide is reasonable is is the amount that we can charge, even if the client agreed to pay more. And, and yet, I then I run into things like deferred annuities with these huge commissions built into them. And I, you know, I, I explain to clients, you know, these surrender charges, that's the commission. That's what this person is getting paid. And the person on the other side selling the annuity will not tell the client that, that I'm right. You know, they will not confirm that I'm right. They will not disclose what their fee is. That is just so foreign to me. I can't understand how people in good conscience can operate that way. I don't mean to denigrate that entire industry because that's too broad a stroke, but there are, there are bad actors in, in every group. I, I'm not also not 
letting all lawyers off the hook here. No, I was, I was just feeling the same way. I don't want people to think that I think anyone that sells annuities is bad. And I, and I don't, I I don't mean to denigrate life insurance. Life insurance has a a very great purpose. I have life insurance. So, you know, I, I definitely don't believe it's a bad thing at all, but it's an industry that is very opaque. And the interesting thing about it, Bryn, um, I just did a conference call with a gentleman that I know that is in the industry and he's started showing people what the commissions are and everything that he's doing. And it raises quite a stir, stir in the industry that's not against the law at all. However, all of the large carriers would prefer that you not disclose what the commissions are. And they, they can put sufficient pressure on those people selling those policies so that they won't because they control a lot of their livelihood. And it's a very, very powerful industry. They have the largest lobbying group of anyone in the United States, maybe followed closely by trial lawyers. I'm not sure though. So I'm sure, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, also because the lawyers are the lobbyists. So I, I think by definition, the lawyers have got to take the lead on, on the best lobbyists in the country. Probably, probably. So I, I, I think there are great ways to find out what these costs are. It's just not easy. We can do that, find ways to accomplish it. The, the other thing that most people don't recognize is the internal costs, especially on annuities, they're commonly 3%. So the internal costs associated with you giving someone your money and then giving them, them giving it back to you, they're taking 3% of that each and every year. So I don't know why people would think that maybe insurance companies are such great investors that they can earn you more and get their 3%. There's just no evidence to support that. So you have to be willing to accept less by virtue of investing in annuity. And if you're happy doing that, then great, buy buy an annuity. But everyone that I've calculated right down to the dollar amount for a client or prospective client, they've declined to purchase it. Yeah, and I think you and I know the same people in the the life insurance space. And there there are some people in that space who are, very willing to disclose commissions to to work with clients in a very clear and transparent way and are willing to uh, treat the client as the way that I frankly I treat my clients where I'm trying to act in the client's best interests and so they're willing to take lower commissions they're willing to mix the insurance policies and, and kind of knit together packages of insurance policies so that the commissions are much less and the cost load on the policies is much less, and it's to the client's advantage. Like there are those people in the industry, you just have to know where to find them, I guess is really the point. The other thing is they will, um, for no charge, do a complete analysis of any existing life insurance policy or annuity. And if, if they look at an, uh, an existing annuity and find that it's got internal costs of say three and a half percent, and they can do a tax deferred exchange, 1035, into another lower cost annuity, they'll tell you how to do that. So there are those people out there, but like you say, they're, they're not the ones that are publishing great big ads on television. Right. Yeah. And you're right. It's, it's 1035 exchange uh, where you can flip it. You can flip between life insurance products, basically. You could go from life insurance to an annuity. You can go from an annuity to a life insurance. And it yeah, can see. be a tax-free transaction. If it's done see, right. See, isn't that great? Now that tells you about their lobbies, uh, you know, their lobbyists oh, again. You yeah, can they have a fantastic lobby. lobby. 
you can go from life insurance to annuity and annuity to life insurance, but you can't go from an annuity to a mutual fund. Jeez, I wonder why. Yeah, or, or an annuity to an IRA. You can't yeah. do that. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, I think we, I think we covered it all. Uh, Rachel, you, you tell me if we're wrong. No, we, we, uh, we checked off the list, but you know, now I think we have to get back to blind water testing since we talked about blind soda <laughs> testing earlier and really have a discussion on that. Uh, yeah. Dasani versus Fiji. Mm-hmm. Who, who can tell the difference? <laughs> this, this, uh, next episode. All right. I yeah. Think we should, we should re, we should require everybody involved in the next episode to have their Dasani and Fiji and their own blindfold. And we'll do the test. I love it. Yep. Uh, well, Doug, I, I can't thank you enough for lending your expertise, for lending your time, because I know that this, this sort of thing takes time to do. Uh, and we just really appreciate you so much. Thank you, Brenda and Rachel. Anytime. These are fun. I'm more than happy to do this anytime you'd like. Excellent. You're on. <laughs>